This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, Human Smoke, The Beginnings of World War II, The End of Civilization, our guest today, Nicholson Baker, reconsiders the conventional wisdom about World War II and suggests that British and American involvement was not as justified as the vast majority of people believe. In Baker's short dispatches, the cynical warmongering of Churchill and FDR force us to reconsider the means and ends, even in a good war, and to view the word terror in a very unsettling context. Baker has published seven previous novels and three works of nonfiction, including Double Fold, which won a National Book Critics Circle Award in 2001. Nicholson Baker, welcome to Weekly Signals. Well, thank you. Delighted to be on the show. How are you doing today? How is it in Maine? It's actually sunny, and, uh, and there's, there's green grass. So. Oh, right. Well, that's <laughs> exciting. Has is it, is it just started to be spring there? Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. the snow piles have finally melted. Now, do you do your, most of your writing there? Yeah, I've, we've lived here for about 10 years, so uh, I, I sit in this house and write. Uh, that, what, that must give you a, a peaceful perspective on World <laughs> War II. How, how did you come up with, the, the, in the subtitle, you have The End of Civilization. What, where does that come from? What are you suggesting there? Well, it's not, obviously we're, we're civilized people, and civilization did survive World War II, but I think the reason I chose that as a part of the subtitle is that that it felt like something different at the time. When you, if you were in Warsaw watching people starve, or if you were in, in Japan uh, seeing this, your country go to war, or, or even in, uh, or in the United States reading the newspaper, this was a level of public brutality, of ferocity, that really had never existed before. And we're still, to an extent, recovering from the kinds of changes that, that uh, the United States and Great Britain put its economy through in order to fight the war. Yeah. Now, I, I, I do love the way the book has been laid out. I, 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 did you intentionally do that from the beginning, or was that something after then that you've compiled all this, the records, the newspapers, the, the, the anecdotal records, and you've pretty much done them in paragraph or two-paragraph what I would like to consider dispatches, was that something that uh, you initially int- uh, wanted to do, or was that after compiling your information, you thought it was the best way to present it? Yeah, first I wanted to, to write a, a book that was really uh, my own attempt, the story of my own attempt to understand how the war began. So there was a lot of me in it. But I, I quickly realized that the problem is that the Second World War, it sounds like it has a big story, and it does. But really, it's made up of all of these very small, relatively small moments of decision or of really of some horrible thing happening somewhere, um, or somebody writes a letter to a newspaper that's kind of a courageous act. And each of those things has to be looked at separately and kind of thought about almost in isolation for a moment. And then you move on to the next thing. And you don't really have the whole story as you're going. You just have one piece, and then another thing happens in Japan, and then something 
happens in Munich, and you, you have to piece it together and make up theories about what's going along um, on the fly, in a way. And that's, what, that's what's true of living through a war, and I wanted to have it be true of reading through a war, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicholson Baker, this is a book that, at its very uh, the heart of it, really challenges so many of our preconceived notions, uh, certainly my pre- preconceived notions, about World War II and it being referred to as the Good War and uh-huh. and the war where the, it was such a clear delineation between the good guys and the bad guys. Where, 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 where did this, where did this start? Or oh, I mean, let's let's go back to the beginning. The book goes from uh, leading up to World War II into the end of 1941. So we're we're really not into the, the U.S. involvement in in World War II. Right. It just starts as as uh, the the internal workings of Europe and what was going on with uh, Germany and and Adolf Hitler and 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 Winston Churchill. Right. Well, the the war. You have to, if, if you, to understand the Second World War, you do have to back up. And of course, some people think that you have to really start with the First World War. I, I think this, this, the way to understand the Second World War is to start with this, this systematic persecution of the Jews and the notion of deterrence, the idea that the West had that if you have even more bigger airplanes and bombs, that you will deter, deter a, a completely irrational horror show nut like Hitler from doing bad things. So I, I tried to chronicle some of those moments, but the book doesn't really get dense until uh, 1938, uh, the year before the war, and then, then in 39, and then it really uh, sort of goes, a kind of constellation of fragments of, of events. Um, and yes, of course, it challenges. Um, I guess it, it's not meant to challenge so much as to be a different way of experiencing the war. And if a reader is surprised and is interested in being challenged, that's one thing. But I think even if if you read through this book and at the end you say, "Well, he's trying to imply that the West shouldn't have fought the war the way it did." I don't agree with them. Even so, I think there might be, I hope there is, stuff in here that um, that you wouldn't know. Well, yes. well, there is. And I, <laughs> Lots I, of stuff. I think, that, I think <laughs> there are, uh, again, by, uh, as, as Nathan said, these sort of dispatches, you get these little, as you say, these pieces, this mosaic that, becomes, that starts to become clearer and clearer in terms of uh, what the actions of were the, the British. Something I didn't know was that the British hadn't actually been bombing German cities before the Germans were bombing Britain. And and what was that? What led up to... Let's go back. Let's yeah. just step back just a second here. Mm-hmm. What were the things that really, sort of the gathering storm that brought us to a point of the crisis within Europe and 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 beyond, in terms of uh, just before we, World War II started? What were the forces that were in play in Germany well, and Britain? Right. In Britain, you said? Well, in Britain and, and Germany yeah. and the rest of Europe. Actually. You have to start with, with Hitler. I mean, this is, he is the, or the, the primary bad guy in all of this, and there would never have been this, this massive convulsion without him, obviously. And so um, this book is not an attempt to, to, to lessen the awfulness of Hitler. It's just to, to ask, okay, you've got this guy who is obviously... It, a really irrational force, uh, 
but a powerful, a, a very powerful person and frightening in the middle of Europe. How do you respond? And what happened was that uh, obviously there were these attempts to respond with Chamberlain and everything. Eventually, Britain decided in its wisdom that, we, that they needed a real old-fashioned British Empire warrior, a guy who had fought the First World War and had tried to starve Germany and, and um, essentially succeeded in starving Germany into submission in that war. And so they, they made Winston Churchill prime minister. And his first decision in the first cabinet meeting was to begin to bomb the cities in the Ruhr Valley, which was where the most of German industry was concentrated. So it was really Churchill's decision to um, what year change was, the nature of the war at what, that point. What year was the, what did the bombing by Britain begin? The, the, uh, well, both sides were doing a kind of very low-intensity air warfare right from the beginning, and, and uh, Hitler had devastated Warsaw. And mm. even before the war, there's, there were, there's Guernica. So it's not as if the German Air Force isn't doing horrific things. Mm-hmm. The, the significant fact, though, is that Hitler deliberately avoided bombing uh, England because he didn't want to provoke uh, um, any retaliation. And uh, so the, the in 1939, there was, with Chamberlain government, there was very restrained kind of bombing around the edges of Germany in um, trying to bomb battleships and whatnot, not very successfully. As soon as Churchill came to power, there was a decision, and his uh, undersecretary said, uh, tonight decision to bomb Ruhr, total war begins, and he wrote that in his diary. So that was May 1940. The other crucial decision at that same cabinet meeting, ironically enough, was that Churchill called for a very large roundup of aliens and suspect persons. He wanted German nationals to be put in jail. Well, those were mostly Jews, so the first... uh, Jews who had fled Germany. Jews who had fled Germany, many of whom had been in German concentration camps. So the, uh, the really appalling thing is that in both cases that the way hitler waged uh, the way churchill waged the war against hitler was was really to target innocent people and and so you can really you can say we should have fought some kind of war and still question whether it was the whether the way churchill wanted to fight it was the right one we're speaking with nicholson baker the book is human smoke the beginnings of world war 2 the end of civilization one of the things that you the theme that runs throughout the the, the book is the level of anti-Semitism that was that was being uh, I don't know what the right word being talked about being uh, the, the the policies not only of Britain obviously of Germany there were horrific anti-Semitism uh, well, that goes without saying but even here in the United States there was an awful lot of there's there's was there a sense that the Jews had kind of brought this on themselves is that a is that a fair fair way to put it oh well I I, I don't they certainly hadn't. I mean, no, I don't. But, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean it the, that the, 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 the reason I wanted to include this kind of genteel anti-Semitism, yeah. El, even Eleanor Roosevelt, who yeah. who really came around in the end, but was saying things that were really surprisingly harshly nasty about Jews um, when she was a young woman, is 
the and and Roosevelt had been part of the attempt to institute quotas at Harvard against Jews and the reason that it's important to to have that as part of the whole picture is that that kind of genteel anti-semitism was what trapped the Jews in Germany where there was a really different kind of 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 state supported brutal lower middle class nazi anti-semitism a skinhead movement so you had this kind of quiet uh, uh genteel form trapping the Jews in the place where they were at most at risk meaning that other countries weren't willing to take the Jews who wanted to leave germany so would Exactly. And the, and the surprise for me in working on the book is that the people who were most vocal about saying, look, we've got to figure out a way to lift the quotas, to open the borders, people were, uh, the, uh, for instance, the Quakers who went over to Germany and tried to figure out a way to help the Jews after Kristallnacht, that when, when hundreds of, of uh, well, when hundreds of synagogues were burned to the ground in an amazing, horrible moment in 1938, the, the pacifists were also the people who were most forcefully saying that the people who are suffering right now are the Jews, and they have got to be allowed out. Mm-hmm. Well, then, at, the, at some point, uh, you were talking, you're also, in the book, brings up some uh, interesting po- the politics of Germany. There was some, there was some idea that maybe if we could contain Hitler, with a, a policy of containment would allow the the more moderate pol- political uh, forces within Germany to depose him. Did you did you find that there was any any sort of uh, did this have any traction with uh, people outside Germany that this was a this was a policy that could be pursued and effectively pursued? Well. Um uh, the, the, I think the people who were worth listening to about it were saying repeatedly, yeah. you've got to keep open the possibility of negotiation and truce, because what happens when you arrive at a truce, even as late as 1940, is that the borders can once again open, and the people who are actually in trouble in, in Poland, let's say, mm-hmm. can get out. Um, well, the first thing that happens during a war is that is that borders close down. And the other thing that happens is that when countries are at war, the most extreme elements in the country, the most milit- the real screamers and the generals and the saber-rattlers are the ones that um, take charge. And I think that one, uh, the most troubling, I guess, implication of this book, for me, is that the West's decision to fight the war this way actually helped support Hitler's government, actually made things worse in Germany for the people who were most in jeopardy. Because it solidified his support within the country. Absolutely. And I think you, it, you, it was, it, it's clear, it's in the pages of the New York Times over and over again, towards the end of 1941, which is really when the true hideousness of the Holocaust was beginning. The decision was taken somewhere in there. That it was that the bombing of German cities was used as a pretext, at the very least, for the uh, removal of Jews from their apartments in Germany. There were handbills printed and distributed, and statements made saying, "Do not support the Jews. 
do not help shelter the Jews, and the Jews are being removed to make uh, new space for um, families who have been unhoused by British airplanes. And that so it was. It's just out there as a as a publicly printed announcement by the German government of this link. And that's really frightening because the idea that 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 the whole effort to fight a just war on behalf of people who really need help and would actually contribute to the suffering of those people, I think is is just so appalling. And I I, I just don't think it's been properly taken into consideration in in about this war. Is that by the end of 1941, there were forces in motion in Germany. I mean, 1942 is the year of mass, mass killing. I mean, I'd stop the book right there, and I end by saying most of the people who were to die during the period of the war were alive. I mean, we're standing at the edge of a cliff there, and the question is, did we need to go to that cliff mm-hmm. um, as as uh in or, as resistors of the Hitlerian menace. Yeah. I think well, we're speaking with Nicholson Baker. The book is Human Smoke, The Beginnings of World War II, The End of Civilization. And I think most people, it seems, at least by um, <laughs> what uh, the sentiment of this country is, it would say that, yeah, we needed to jump off that cliff that we needed to make that kind of sacrifice of innocence in order to stop Hitler from conquering the world. The greater good. Yeah. 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 And are, are, you, are you surprised by the type of critical backlash you've had to this book and, and the, these type of notions that still exist, even in light of where we stand today with, in war? Well, I'm surprised at some of, some of them, but, but I, I think it takes a little time for... Um, for a different way of looking at it to to settle in, and there's there is going to be a certain period of anger about it. I mean, I'm not to say that this isn't. It's just it's just really difficult to accept the fact that a war that sounds as good as this would actually have been a horrible, horrible, futile mistake, and that that it would have made things worse is just. Uh, almost on the verge of unacceptable, even though we know from things like Iraq and from even from 9-11 that what happened in 9-11 is, is two buildings were firebombed in a very unorthodox way, but that's basically what happened. Immediately there was a fierce wave of rage that traveled through this country, an attempt to find enemies, rounding up of people, suspension of due process, the invasion of two countries. I mean... Uh, things when things fall on you from the sky, uh, uh, it creates a, a retaliatory rage, and um, and that is really a very uh, dangerous thing to unleash in a population. And I think that uh, with the end of World World War One was con- was just a slaughterhouse. I mean, right. the, the millions of people, and uh, something surprising uh, that you talk about in the book was. Uh, Churchill's lament that he wished that the war World War One had gone on longer because the British Air Force would have been ready to unleash another another 
layer of hell on on the German people. Yes. Uh, that and and yes. and there's a there's a portrait of of Churchill that in this in these dispatches in these in these reports that is unflattering to say the least. I mean he yeah. he really comes across in many ways as a uh, a savage sort of leader in the sense that uh, and I think that's something you talk about in the book or that the the level of in the intense level of of brutality that was so immediate in World War II that came yeah. on so quickly. And, and I, well, I know Hitler obviously had a tremendous amount of responsibility here, but Churchill himself was very much in, 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 the, in the business of unleashing uh, unshirted hell on these people. Well, well, right. And you, I mean, we have to stipulate that Hitler is the evil person. Yes. You know, we have to start with that. And that, but, so you don't want to be saying you don't want to be drawing an equal sign between mm. Churchill and Hitler. Not only that, but they're so different. But it, but Churchill was in a manic phase, and yeah. um, it's uh, over and over again. Just I just asked myself, you know, uh, he decides that he wants to set all of German forests alight. You know, to, uh, drop these fire wafers and that would set the trees on fire at one point. And, and when Italy comes into the war, he says, okay, the first thing we should do is have an aerial bombing of three northern Italian cities just so that the Italians will know what war means. What on earth? I mean, is that, is that in any way calculated to help anybody who needs help? It was the question that ran through my mind. And over and over again, it just seemed like Churchill was, was really on a kind of a rampage. <laughs> do, you, do you think that that had anything to do with the the experience of the British Empire. We do know that that Churchill approved of gassing of uh, I don't know it was Iraq or the people some people in the Middle East. And I I'm, I apologize. It was, yeah. I believe it was actually the Iraqi people at one point were were gassed by British forces. It goes back to the loss of India, the sort of the decline of the British Empire, and this and this loss of power and leadership in the world. Do you think that fueled some of Churchill's uh, motives and reactions? Well, Churchill was the great. Uh, thought of himself really as the great uh, savior of what was left of the British Empire. He's uh, and he uh, resisted Indian independence, and he of course was terrible about Ireland. Yeah. Um, but he was uh, he had this idea that he thought, okay, well the British Empire controls whatever it is, three fifths of the planet. Um, it's expensive. We can't have standing armies all over the place, so we'll have air control will get people to do what we want them to do all over the place in villages by flying airplanes over them and telling them what we want them to do. If they don't do it, we'll, we'll bomb them. And that was air control was the Royal Air Force's method of policing its empire under Churchill long before the Second World War. So the war itself, when it came, began with an attempt to perform the same sort of air control on Germany, and it was a disaster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so the yeah, the British Empire. That's what I didn't really understand is how how powerful the idea and the procedures of the British Empire were in this in, in shaping the nature of the war, and also, of course, the F- Churchill having lived through the First World War, in which two armies are frozen and paralyzed in front of each other in these horrible trenches. He was not, and he said so a number of times, he was not going to have, this was, Second World War was not going to be a war in which large armies hurl themselves at each other. It was going to be a war 
of factories of of four-engine bombers that would fly over the armies and attack the enemy's industry. Well, and destroy that that nation's will to carry on. And right. and and there's there's another statistic which uh, it gets bandied about, but the basic truth is is that World War One was a war in which armies, uh, the military, suffered the greatest casualties. World War Two, we see a shift that we still see today in which the civilian population, by a large measure, suffered much more than than people in uniform did. So I've heard it went from 90% military in World War One to 90% civilians were killed in World War Two. Uh, 90% of the casualties. I don't know if that's exactly accurate, but the, the point is, is that we've shifted. There's been a... A, a, a giant shift in the way that we wage war against another country. Yes, and uh, and and um, uh, unfortunately, Churchill was a big part of yeah. that shift because yeah. he decided the uh, the strategy of the, the the British chose to win the war was they said, okay, we're going to defend Poland, and then they, then it real then they realized there's no way they can. Do, what does it mean to say they will help Poland? They didn't do anything. So they decided what we'll do is blockade Germany. It worked in the First World War. It'll work this time. And while Chamberlain was prime minister, he allowed American food ships um, under Herbert Hoover's food relief program to get to Poland. The other major decision, as soon as uh, Churchill became prime minister, was to tighten the British blockade so that food relief couldn't reach Poland and France and other places where there were Jews imprisoned. And so the, the actual effect of, of the way the British uh, waged the war was to make things once again worse. And in Warsaw, where people were really dying of hunger, the, the uh, food relief was cut off. And Hoover, who was, turns out to be one of the quiet heroes of, of that popped up in my research, was saying publicly, what does this have to do with winning the war? Is starving these people in Poland going to make things any easier for the, for the actual tri- eventual triumph of the Allies? No. Well, Nicholson Baker, um, we've almost done a disservice to you in this in this because this book covers so much more than we were able to talk to. I know we focused a lot on on uh, Churchill and Hitler. There are so much more in this book. You Human smoke, the Gandhi. At the all. Gandhi. Oh. I mean, there's just so much here. Uh, I urge uh, anyone who is interested in what in filling out the history of World War II to pick up Human Smoke, the beginnings of World War II and the end of civilization. Thank you for being here on Weekly Signals. Well, my pleasure. Thanks, guys, very much. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.